0: Good evening, everybody. Hope y'all are well. My name is Amy Foster, and it's just um, the great privilege of my life to get to be at Women in the Word with you. I'm part of the teaching team and love every minute of it. I was thinking some of y'all have worked at kids' camp this week, and you're here, and you're tired, and I just want to say thank you for being here. And then I thought some of you have been at work all day, and you're tired, and you're here, and I want to say thank you for being here. And I know some of you have kids who are out of school on summer break and you've been chasing them around all day, so thank you. I know you're tired. I'm glad you're here. And I just sat in the back of the room and prayed that you could sit and rest and the Word of God would just wash over you and restore you and revive you. And that's why we're here. So I'm really glad to do that with you. Um, I gave you a question to talk about around your tables tonight to just share a favorite vacation souvenir or maybe a souvenir regret and I laughed as I thought of that because I I thought of a great souvenir regret from my childhood, but it actually wasn't mine. It was my older brother's. We took a lot of driving vacations growing up, and um, one particular trip, my parents gave us each $5 and told us to spend it carefully, and we headed out across West Texas for hours and stopped at a gas station. Now, some of you are too young to know this. Gas stations used to just sell gas. That's (laughs) all they had. Do you remember? There were no QTs. Um, If you were really lucky, a gas station had a Coke machine in the garage for the guys who worked there. And every now and then there was a little circular rack, and maybe you could buy a map or a lighter or a a pack of gum or something like that. So my dad's pumping gas, and we can't figure out where my brother is, and my dad's honking the horn, and my brother comes out of the gas station wearing a big pair of mirrored sunglasses. (laughs) And they've still got the price tag hanging on them. And he looks right at me and he says, they were only $5. I had exactly what I needed. And my heart just sunk for him. I thought, what a regret. We're going to Carlsbad Cavern and there's going to be a gift shop. And then we're going to Colorado and there's going to be a fudge store and he's going to be out of money. And I knew he regretted that purchase. I've had other souvenir regrets since then, but mine are usually the opposite end. I usually don't make the purchase. I can't pull the trigger, and I regret it afterwards. I went to the beach a few weeks ago. I love the beauty of the beach, and I love to have reminders back home of the beach. I was shopping in a little store one night, and I picked up these beautiful crystal drinking glasses, and they had etching around them. And as I looked close, I could tell the etching was in the shape of fish, All these fish swimming the same direction around the glass, and they were so pretty. And the shopkeeper came over and said, well, there's something unique about those glasses. Every glass has one fish swimming in the opposite direction. So I'm searching, and quickly you can find that one fish, because they stand out, right? I didn't buy them. I didn't buy them. I've regretted it ever since. Especially as I studied this story, I kept thinking about those glasses and I kept thinking about the one fish swimming in the opposite direction because that's really a picture of the Shunammite woman. She is one woman walking in the opposite direction and she is walking towards God when everyone else is walking away. These stories we've been studying, I don't know if you've noticed, they're really taking us through the history of the Old Testament, the history of the children of Israel. So I think it's helpful if we just kind of review that history and you'll know where where this story is happening. Remember, the Israelite story begins with Abram or Abraham and God calls him out. You could read about that in Genesis chapter 12. God calls him out and says, I want to have a special relationship with you and I'm promising you three things. And God promises him that he would have a child, even though he's old and has never had a child before. And from that one child, a whole nation would evolve, and they would be the Israelites. And God also said, I'm going to give you a special land. And it's the land all the way north of the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River, all the way down to the Dead Sea. Fertile land. God says, I'm going to give you that And then God says, and then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the whole nation. You're going to live as my people. You're going to have a special relationship with me. You're going to live separately from the rest of the world. And the whole world will be blessed because of that. And we know that Abraham believed God, and he left his home, and he set out for a new country. And even though he was very old and his wife was very old, God honored his promise and gave them a child and from one child, the nation of Israel, to send it. They became numerous, so numerous they were enslaved by the Egyptians for labor. Then God called out Moses to deliver them from Egypt and to carry them into the promised land, and God did many miracles and miraculous, powerful things to show he was with them, and God led them out. And he took them to the promised land, and you remember the story, the land was inhabited. There were people already there and the Israelites were afraid to trust the promise of God. They were afraid to go in. And take that land, even though God had promised them. So they wandered in the desert for 40 years while God matured them and got them ready. And then the leadership was passed from Moses to Joshua. And if you were here for the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, you know, under Joshua's leadership, they began to go into that inhabited land. And one city at a time, they conquered it. And God honored his promise, and God gave them the land. Then they established a monarchy. Remember they had King Saul and King David and King Solomon. Then they had some difficulties, some infighting, and they split, almost like a civil war. And they had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So now there are two countries, and God gives them kings. So there's a king over each part, the northern and the southern part. And God expects the kings to lead them spiritually, and he expects the kings to set the example Um, But the kings begin leading the people away. Most of the kings are evil and lead the people away from God. But God is holy and he's righteous and he, uh, he can't tolerate sin and rebellion. He can't tolerate their walking away from him. But God is also faithful and he's merciful and he wants to restore that relationship. So God sends prophets. And the prophets were God's spokespeople, God's spokesmen, and they were authoritative special messengers, and they spoke on God's behalf, and they spoke God's words. And the prophets urged the kings and the people to turn back to God, and they performed miracles to prove that they were God's spokesperson, and they displayed God's mercy and God's power. So first and second Kings, where our story is found tonight, this is the story. It tells the history of the kings, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And it tells the story of their leading the people away from God. And it tells the story of the prophets that God regularly sent to them, urging them to turn back to God. And over and over again, these prophets warn, if Israel would walk towards God, if Israel would turn around, then God would honor his promises. But God will lift his hand of protection, and God will allow other nations to come in and conquer them if they don't turn around. <clears throat> Sadly, First and Second Kings is the historical account of an entire nation walking away from God. But every now and then, sprinkled in this account, we get a story like the Shunammite woman. And it's a story of faithfulness, and it's a story of one person walking in the other direction. And they stand out just like that one fish on the glass because they are being faithful to God. So I want you to read with me. We're going to read this story in Second Kings chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 8. And one day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and he rested. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered well she has no son and her husband is old he said call her and when he called her in she stood in the doorway and Elisha said at this season about this time next year you shall embrace a son and she said no my lord O man of God do not lie to your servant but the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring as Elisha had said to her. Okay, well, Shunem is a city. It's in the Northern Territory, so it's part of Israel. And it was right along the road that connected Mount Carmel and Samaria. So these were the areas where where Elisha was doing the most work. And as he traveled back and forth between these two areas, he regularly passed her home in this area. And it tells us that she would approach him and offer to feed him. And then she extended that hospitality even more, and she decided she would build a special room on the roof of her house so he would have a place to stay. We learn some things about her early on. It tells us she's wealthy, and that's going to be important, so remember that. But the most important thing we learn about here is we see right away she's a woman who's placed her faith in God. Her desire to care for Elisha is totally understood when you look at that statement where she says she knows he's a holy man of God. That's the belief that causes her to take all these actions and do all these generous things for him. She recognizes him as holy. Holy means separate, set apart from what is sinful or profane. And she recognizes him as a man of God. And that was a formal term for a prophet a spokesperson for God. So she recognizes Elisha as a representative for God. So we see her reverence and her respect for God's prophets when she cares for Elisha in this way. And that's just one way she stands out in sharp contrast to the rest of the Israelites, because they do not have a pattern of respecting or revering the prophets. On your verse sheet, Second Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 15... The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. So we see right away she's living differently. She's honoring and respecting the prophet. I think we don't just see her faith and her belief here. We see her take action based on her faith. We see the activity of faith here. And the activity of faith is aligning itself with the people of God. And the activity of faith is aligning herself with the work of God. What she's doing is enabling him to do God's work. She is supporting his ministry. She recognizes in Elisha, Somebody who's doing God's work and she decides she's going to join him in the best way that she can. And that is an activity of faith. I think there's a great application for us today because I think most of you would agree we also live in a culture that is walking away from God. We live in a culture that is walking away from the truth of God. And just like her, we need to be people of vibrant faith. So we just need to know that vibrant faith is active faith. We can put feet to our faith and join God in his work. And an easy way to do that is to align yourself with the people of God and the work of God exactly as she does. James one twenty two says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So we know that, that faith is not just a belief. It's not just something we understand up here. It's something that we do that comes out of us, and that's what we see in her. Now, we learned that she was wealthy, But we also see in these verses, she's influential. She's rather powerful, actually. She reminded me a little of the Proverbs 31 woman taking care of things in her house. She develops a plan to build an addition onto her house and to furnish it exclusively for Elijah. And she presents that plan to her husband, who agrees. So we see she's using her wealth and her influence at home to demonstrate this faith in God and participate in his work. And then we see a pattern emerges, and this is a really important pattern. I hope you'll catch it because it happens all through the Bible and it happens in our lives today. As she demonstrates faith, God responds to her, and God enters her circumstances, and God shows himself to be faithful in return. And it's a pattern that shows up all through the scriptures. Now, I don't want to confuse it with the idea of earning salvation or earning a relationship with God. That's not what that is. She already had a relationship with God. But it's a pattern of God responding when we act faithfully. Put a few verses on your verse sheet. We see this through the scriptures and you see this in your own life. So as we read these, just look for that pattern of God responding when his people act faithfully. Jeremiah 29, 13 says you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and 2nd chronicles 15 2 says the lord is with you while you are with him if you seek him he will be found by you but if you forsake him he will forsake you and my favorite is james 4:8. draw near to god and he will draw near to you so over and over god tells us that he will respond to our obedient faith. He will respond when we walk toward him just like she did. And that's exactly what he does. He responds to her through the prophet Elisha by offering her a special favor, offering to address a specific need in her life. Elisha wants to show gratitude and to compensate her. He offers to speak to the king or the commander on her behalf because Elisha was connected to those people and they were powerful people. Um, But she answers him that she doesn't really need that. Um, Her words are interesting. She says, I live among my own people. And here's what that means. I have my own connections. She's well-connected, and she is content. Um, But he's offering her powerful connections, and she's answering that she doesn't quite need them. She's very content, and she's very well-connected also. So I want you to look at all the things we know about her so far. She's wealthy. They told us that right off the bat. That means she doesn't worry about provisions. She's influential. That means she doesn't have to worry about power. She's well-connected. She does not have to worry about position. Power, provision, position. She's got it all, doesn't she? What do you give a woman who has all of that? By worldly standards, she has everything. So Elisha and Gehazi discuss what they could possibly do for her. And God has already revealed through Gehazi, her situation is not quite as perfect. She has no son, and her husband is old. Now, that might sound like a silly complaint, her husband is old. But here's what that means. Um, He's really talking about both her present situation and her future situation. One day, perhaps one day soon, she will be a widow without a son. And even though she has a home and wealth right now, wealth and property was passed from husband to son. So if her husband dies without a son, that wealth and that property goes to his family, and she is left as a dependent. So what we know is that her future is insecure. Her future is very insecure. That is a very soon and pressing material need that she is going to experience. But we also recognize here there's a present need. That's going to happen in the future. But in the present, she has a need also, and it's a need in her heart. To be barren in Israel was considered a great shame. It was considered a great personal tragedy not to have a child, particularly not to have a son. I have no doubt that like many other women in the Bible and many other women I know, she had prayed for years for God to bless her with a son. And that prayer had gone unanswered. That that was a a terrible, terrible burden to carry them just as it is now. I have no doubt that it was a personal heartbreak and a grief and a loss. So right away we see that even though she looks like she has everything, she's got this heart need right now because it's it's an unfulfilled longing. So now we've really got a complete picture of her. She's wealthy and powerful and connected and content, but her future is insecure. And she doesn't have much hope of her circumstances changing because her husband is old. So God, who knows every heart and God, who knows every need, points out the unknown need in her life. And through the words of the prophet, he promises to meet that need. He promises that she will have a child. And God does meet that need with a great blessing with a son the following year. But you quickly see when Elisha suggests this to her that she believes it's impossible and she believes it's hopeless. She says, oh, no, do not lie to your servant. I really think when we got to that line, you you saw her heart there. You saw how that was a fragile and a tender part of her heart that had been broken longing for a child. And it's such a fragile part. She's a little unwilling to hope that anything good can ever come of that again. She doesn't want to place her hope in something that will disappoint. She doesn't want a false hope. But I think, fortunately, God does not offer false hope. Listen to how God is described in Romans 15, verse 13. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Well, the prophet expresses with certainty that God is going to meet this need in her life and give her a son. It's a promise made directly to her. And we've seen this a few other times in Israel's history where God comes in to a childless family. He promises a child. Um, We saw it first with Abraham and Sarah. You know, he was old and they didn't believe either one of them could have a child. And they give them Isaac. And that's where the nation of Israel comes from. Then we saw it. Do you remember the story of Hannah? Hannah was the woman who would weep at the temple as she prayed, asking God to give her a child. And she, her grief is so great that the priest thinks she's drunk early in the morning. Um, God promises Hannah a son, and God gives her Samuel, who becomes a priest. And then even in the New Testament, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're old, and they don't have children, and they're promised a child, and not just any child, but one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And what happened? God honored his promise, and he gave them John the Baptist. So this is one method that God works in in his world with his people. So the Shunammite woman receives this specific promise of God and she bears a son and it was all grace because God recognized the need in her life. It was a gift from God and it was God's activity. And when God works a miracle like that, it always accomplishes multiple purposes. First it was proof that God was faithful to his promises. It was also proof that Elisha was a true prophet, and his words should be believed. It clearly showed that even though men walk away from God, God was still in control, and he could intervene in the lives of individuals. And it also showed God's character, and he showed that his character is both powerful and faithful and merciful. Second Chronicles 16.9 on your verse sheet says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And that's really a perfect picture of this situation. God sees who is walking toward him, and God responds and strengthens her heart, and he meets her need. You know, as I read that, I thought we all have parts of our heart that have been disappointed and broken, and maybe parts of our hearts that are still longing. But we don't all have a specific promise from God that he's going to give us that one thing that we're still hoping for, and sadly, every childless woman cannot claim the promise that was made to the Shunammite woman. That was a specific promise made at a specific time to one specific person. But we do have general promises. All through the scriptures, we have general promises. The most important one is John 3:16: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. The promise that through Jesus we can have a forever relationship with God. In First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promise that there is a solution to our sin, those are general promises, but we don't take those promises lightly. When God makes promises, he brings hope into hopeless circumstances. That's who he is, and he brings hope... To all of us who are dead in our sins, to all of us who are walking in the wrong direction, moving away from God, to all of us who have an insecure future, God brings hope to us through his promises. The Bible is full of these promises, full of general promises, and they're made to the people who, through belief in Jesus Christ, walk towards God. And God is faithful to those promises, so I want to ask you, do you know them? Do you know the promises of God? I think you should. I think you want to. If you know them, you can claim them, and you can hope in them, and you can move toward them. So you need to know the promises of God, and there's another reason you need to know them. You need to know what hasn't been promised. I hear a lot of women who claim great promises and they're not promises that are in this Bible. So you need to know the promises of God. So I want to encourage you to start looking for them and start writing them down because they're there. And we serve a God who honors his promises. And when God honors his promises, no, not only do we accept the thing he's promised, not only do we receive that, we get something more. We get an experience with God. We get an experience where he enters our circumstances. He shows us how powerful and good and loving he is. He shows us that he still acts in our world and individual lives. That's who our great God is. Um, The other thing that I think is really interesting, when she talks about her hope here, um, losing hope and all of that, I don't think the Shunammite has ever placed hope In having a baby, I don't think that was the great hope. I think she keeps her hope on God. She's not hoping in the thing that's missing. She's hoping in the God who's going to meet her needs um, because he's faithful. So as we look through this, let's keep that in mind that we're going to see her hope is on God. Her hope is not on that baby. Let's keep reading uh, verses 18 and 20. We've just read that Elisha made the promise, and sure enough, a year later, she has a child. Um, Spoiler alert, the story's about to take a real sad turn, so I'm sorry about that. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother... The child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. So the child of promise dies. He's obviously a little bit older here. He's old enough to go out into the field with his father. We don't know exactly what happened. It reads a little bit like a heat stroke, though, and it's uh, some kind of medical event that takes his life. God had clearly stated his plan and his promise, but now we have circumstances disrupting God's plan. And this is a perfect picture of the nation of Israel at this time. God had promised to live with them in a unique and blessed relationship where they would honor and obey Him, and He would bless them. but circumstances have also disrupted that plan as God as people are walking away from god but here 's what we always have to remember: circumstances do not nullify god 's promises they never do they might disrupt but they never alter or nullify the promises of God. Let's pick the story back up, verse 21. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and she shut the door behind him and went out. And then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go today? It's neither the new moon moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? And he said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So Elisha rose and followed her. <clears throat> All right, there's some confusing things about the way she reacts there. Um, If you take each action and kind of list out what she's doing, it really puts together this beautiful picture of faith, and it's always faith in the promises of God. It's faith in the character of God. Right off the bat, she does a strange thing. Does she lay the boy out for mourners and get him ready for a funeral? Perhaps in the common space, she doesn't. She takes him upstairs discreetly. She puts him in Elisha's room, and she shuts the door, and she shuts that problem up in the the room set aside for the man of god then she tells her husband i'm going quickly and i'm coming back to get the man of god so we really we're beginning to hear faith there in our story because she knows she's coming back her husband's confused he sees no reason to pursue the man of god when it's not a, a sabbath or a holy day or anything and her answer is the most confusing thing of all isn't it all is well You know, how often have you had a a tragic thing going on in your life and people wave and how are you and you say, I'm fine, you know, (laughs) and you're not, you're not fine. At first I thought, that's what she's doing. She just doesn't want to slow down or maybe she's being a little dishonest. I don't think that's what she's doing. Um, A more accurate translation is not all as well, but it will be all right. It will be all right. That's what she's saying. And those are words of great faith. She rides on as fast as she can. It probably took her five or six hours to get to Mount Carmel and the, the man of God. And when the servant Gehazi intercepts her, she gives the same answer. It is, well, it will be all right. What we see here is she's not going to pour her troubles out to anyone but the man of God. So I want to stop here, and I want us each to think about this a minute. Surely she had a best friend or a sister or a mom's group. Surely there were people she could have gone to to pour her heart out. How often do we turn to something else in our distress and in our disappointment instead of just going straight to the source of help, straight to the man of God? She is an amazing picture of faith here, walking towards God alone, allowing nothing to get in her way and allowing nothing to slow her down a great picture of faith. When she finally reaches Elisha, it says she falls at his feet and Elisha recognizes her distress. So again, only here with a man of God does she express her deep grief and does she unload this huge burden of her heart. And I loved it said she clings to his feet. And all I could think was a clingy woman never looked so beautiful you know it is so unattractive when we cling to hopeless things when we cling to things that offer us nothing that's unattractive but when you cling to the source of hope that is beautiful and we're going to see her do that for a while here she is going to cling to god it reminded me um of peter's answer to jesus When Jesus' teaching is getting more and more narrower and the the cost of discipleship is becoming great and people start falling away from following him, he turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to abandon me too? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. She knows that. She knows there's nowhere else to go. Even in confusion and grief, when her hope is really wavering, she keeps walking towards God, knowing there's no better place to go. One author wrote, Our faith always moves in the direction of our hope. I'm going to say it again. Our faith moves in the direction of our hope. That's what we see here. Her faith is moving her, but it's not moving her in the wrong direction. She's not placed her hope in any human relationships that are going to offer her comfort. She's not placed her hope in any worldly comforts that are going to assuage her grief. She's not even placed her hope in that precious child that's shut up in the room of the man of God. She's placed her hope in God, and that's why she is moving as close to God as she can possibly go. So I want you to stop for a minute, and I want you to ask yourself the question, where does your faith move you? Where does it move you? Where do you, What do you move toward when circumstances are uncomfortable? And I want to challenge you. You can be pretty certain, whatever it is you're moving toward, that's something you've placed your hope in. So place your hope in God and move towards him. She gets there to to that spot at his feet and she says, did I desire a son? Did I say do not deceive me? She's expressing her heartbreak and her confusion, but this is actually her plea and her request. She's saying, don't let God's words deceive me. Don't let God deceive me and let me down here. And immediately she picks her faith back up. I want you to look at verse 30. This is the declaration of faith in this chapter. She says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. That expression, as the Lord lives, that's repeated several times in First and Second Kings. It's a strong oath. And there is no doubt implied in it at all. So it means as certainly as God lives. I think we've heard the expression today, as surely as the sun rises in the east. Nobody doubts that, do they? That means we all know that's going to happen every day. That's what she's saying. As certain as I am that God lives, as certain as I am that you are the holy man of God, I will not leave you. Her faith has moved her in the direction of her hope, and when she got there, she fell, and she clung to his feet, and she pled her case, and she said, I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere else. How could her faith be that strong? How could it be? I have to believe that she knows God, and she knows how he's acted with his people in the past. I think she probably knows the story of the child of promise, Isaac, who was born to Abraham. And later in life, God asked Abraham to put that child on an altar and sacrifice him. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham was obedient because he knew God could resurrect that child in order to honor his promise. Fortunately God stopped that process before Abraham actually sacrificed him. I think she knows that the prophet Elijah, who was who was working in this area before Elisha, he brought a widow's son back to life, resurrected him from the dead. I think she knows that the spirit of Elijah was transferred to Elisha. Actually they'll say a double portion. She knows what God has done in her past. Knowing how God has worked in the past, that gives her confidence to trust and believe his promises in the present. So we need to know how God has worked in the past. The same is true for us. Let's read beginning in verse 31. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in, and he shut the door behind the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again, and he walked once back and forth in the house, and he went up and he stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, "'Call this Shunammite.' So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, "'Pick up your son.' She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, and then she picked up her son and went out." Okay, Gehazi is probably younger and faster than Elisha, and that's why Elisha sends him on ahead with his staff. And again, with the instructions, stop for no one, he was to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, to everybody he passed along the way. The staff was kind of like a walking stick. Um, It was the same staff that Elijah had used. He'd used it to part the waters of the Jordan to perform mighty miracles. The staff was a symbol of divine power, and sending it on ahead represented Elisha's presence, getting there before Elisha did. But the staff did not have power, and the staff was not a magical item. So Gehazi lays that staff on the boy, and nothing happens. So Elisha reaches the child, and I loved this. He immediately shuts the door, and he prays. Haven't you all been waiting for prayer in this whole story? I've been waiting for someone to pray. This is the first time we see prayer. I think it's interesting that he shuts the door. I think that symbolizes shutting out everything else. I think it symbolizes intimacy and secrecy in the way he's going to communicate with God, and I think it's important. He shuts everything out, and he concentrates solely on the power of God. This idea of laying his body out on top of the boys, that's, that's confusing. Um, different theologians have lots of different ideas about that. The one that makes the most sense to me is laying down like that. That's the posture of prayer. It's this idea of laying prostrate on the ground as you're talking to God. And that's really the posture of helpless prayer, isn't it? And I don't know if you've ever prayed like that, ladies, but when I have, it never was planned. It was just part of the prayer process, and I felt so helpless and so focused on needing God that I wound up on my face. And I really think that might be what we're seeing here, too. He's feeling helpless. One author says this, true prayer is a fruit of helplessness and faith. And isn't that great? Helplessness becomes prayer the moment we go to God. What else can offer us that? To turn our helplessness into faith by going to God. So when Elisha prays, something does begin to happen. The boy begins to warm up. We see prayer, not a magic staff, bringing God's power into these circumstances. It's not an immediate healing. It appears to happen a little bit slowly in stages. And all the while, if you look carefully at that, Elisha's walking back and forth. He's going up and down the stairs, and he's laying down again on that child. That's really showing you you this was fervent and persistent prayer. I mean, he was wholly committed to praying and and being in communion with God. James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working and that's exactly what we see here. Life is ultimately restored to this little boy. Life is usually represented by air in your lungs and so what great evidence that there's air in his lungs he's sneezing and unless there's any confusion he sneezes seven times. It was a miracle and we've already discussed miracles communicate many things about God. This communicated God was more powerful than death. It communicated God's care for the needy and hurting is significant. It communicated Elisha is a true prophet of God, Israel should listen to him. If God can restore life to one little boy in order to honor his promise, God could also restore life to Israel even though they were spiritually dead. And if God can do all of that, God can restore spiritual life to each one of us even though we are dead in our sins too. Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. That was a promise from God. Israel's special relationship with God could be restored and could be healed if they would just walk toward God. I thought about this, studying it. God really takes each one of us through this process. Um, In total grace, he comes to us and he makes himself known to us. He reveals the biggest need of our heart. He reveals to each one of us that our futures are insecure without him. And even if we have all kinds of worldly success and worldly provision... We are not secure in eternity without a relationship with God. And when we turn to him and believe in him and walk toward him, he restores us. He restores us from being spiritually dead the same way he restores this little boy. God can revive what is spiritually dead. God can bind up what is broken and hurting. Ephesians 2 on your verse sheet, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins and once you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we see God as consistent all through the scriptures. He honors his promises, and in all of our own lives, he is consistent as well. Our stories are as unique and creative as each of us are, but in every single story, one thing is consistent. God is the steady, unchanging hero who honors his promises every time he's holy and righteous and because of that he doesn't tolerate sin and he judges it and he does discipline his people but he's also faithful and merciful and gracious and always desiring to restore us to a right relationship with him that's what we see with one woman walking in the opposite direction of everybody else and when she's reunited with his son did anybody notice she doesn't scoop up that boy first She doesn't do that. She goes back to the feet of Elisha, and she worships. And I think we clearly see that her hope never was in that little boy in his life. Her hope was in God. And only after acknowledging God does she scoop him up. I love that the, the story began with the promise of God one day she would embrace a child. And then it really looked like the story was messed up and circumstances had intervened, but look how it ends. She's embracing her child, but she's embracing her child with a heart that is so full of worship and adoration and all her hope set on God. God is faithful to his promises no matter what. That's the resounding theme of this story. Sadly, the book of 2 Kings does not end well. It ends with both Judah and Israel going under captivity. They don't turn back to God during this time. Other nations come in and conquer them, kill many of them, and carry the rest away to live in exile in other countries. And that happens because the people refuse to turn around and walk back towards God. But God's promise would one day be fulfilled one day he would bring them back and restore them but a time of correction would have to take place so in this sad downward spiral that's all through first and second kings every now and then we see this beautiful picture of one person walking in the other direction and it's a beautiful picture of faith what i want you to remember from this story her faith was an active faith it wasn't all up here just what she believed it was what she was doing So your faith can be an active faith, too. You can actively choose to support the people of God and the work of God in our world that's needed today. You can actively choose to know and believe God's specific promises. You can actively choose to rush straight to God when you experience difficulties and distress. You can actively choose to cling to God and look for comfort and help and nothing else because nothing else offers hope. You can actively choose, like Elisha, to pray fervent and earnest prayers, seeking the will of God, trusting that prayer brings God's power into our circumstances. So let your faith move you to God because God responds to our acts of faith. He brings himself into every hopeless situation, and he heals, and he restores, and he always honors his promises. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who wants to be known and wants to live in relationship with us, and we thank you that you've provided the way for us to do that through the work of Jesus on our behalf. So we thank you. We thank you that you've given us these stories and protected these stories so that we could know more about who you are. And we thank you that you make promises and you're faithful to those promises, Lord. So my prayer is that we can not just believe, but that we can act on our belief and that our faith could take us closer and closer to you every day in every circumstance. Lord, I pray this so that you would be glorified in the world. I pray this so that our faith would be a blessing to others in the world. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.